From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. For men over the age of 50, problems with the prostate are common. The prostate gland tends to grow larger as you get older, which can cause a number of health issues. On today's program, we'll highlight prostate health during Men's Health Month and learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. I also do uh, surgical mission work in Haiti where it's different. The same disease of BPH, men are dying. So in the United States, it's more of a disease of convenience. In other parts of the world, it's more of a disease that can be lethal. Also on the program, sex after a heart attack. And a startup company making a product to help surgical patients stay covered up. That's this week's program. Up next. June is Men's Health Month, finally. Oh, God. The purpose of Men's Health Month is to raise (laughs) awareness of preventable health problems and to encourage early detection and treatment for men and boys. Now, that's a really good idea. Here are some facts from the CDC that you may not know. Okay. Women are 100% more likely to visit the doctor for annual examinations and preventive services than are men. Does that surprise you? Not a bit. Probably not. Now, in 1920, women lived on average one year longer than men. But now, men on average die almost five years earlier than women. I don't know what happened. No comment. No comment from me. It's not an exaggeration to say that, on average, men live sicker and die younger than American women. Men need help. That's right. We live sicker and die younger. (laughs) We need Men's Health Month. You're right. Joining us in studio to talk about one of many men's health issues, the prostate gland, is Dr. Mitch Humphreys from Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Dr. Mitch Humphreys, always good to have you on the program. Welcome to Rochester. So what advice would a world-class urologist have for American men? So one of the things that I would tell men is that a lot of times as men get older, they find that they're not peeing as well, mostly because they say, well, it's just age. I'm just not peeing as well. So this is normal. My dad did it. My grandfather did it. I get old. You know, my going to the bathroom with my grandson, he's done in two minutes and I'm still standing there five minutes later. And so they equate that as the normal process of aging. It's not really the normal process of aging. What it's signifying is as the prostate gets bigger, it causes obstruction. And one of the slow urinary streams may be that first symptom that most men detect in that. They also get up more at night to urinate. There's several reasons for that. Um, one of the most important ones is a lot of times men get nocturia, and it's a, that just means getting up more at night to go to the bathroom. Okay. And the reason for that is is sometimes, especially in men that may have other health problems like sleep apnea, you wouldn't think of sleep apnea causing problems with urination. That's where you kind of hold your breath at night when you sleep. But when you snore and you sleep, that right side of the heart gets dilated. And then what happens, the heart sends a message to your kidneys and says, this person's got too much fluid on board. You need to make more urine and get the urine out. Um, and so men get up more at night to, sl- to urinate. They don't get as good a night rest, and it's indicative of what's going on with their heart. And the heart can get stretched, and it can cause problems. So what I would tell men, the take-home message from that is don't ignore your urinary system. It may be kind of your early warning system that something's going on that you need to fix, whether it's in your lower urinary tract with your prostate or it could be reflective of your heart and how you're sleeping and other things. So it's important to pay attention. 
So we needed a prostate gland to reproduce yep. at, at one time. <clears throat> Don't need it anymore. It's a useless organ. But why does it get bigger as men age? So the prostate is just a gland, and it's one of those glands that's responsive to hormones. So the more the prostate is um, exposed to testosterone over your life, the more it will grow. Basically, the prostate takes testosterone, and it converts it into dihydroepitestosterone, which is a fancy way of just how it handles the hormone to grow. As it grows, it gets bigger. And the size itself doesn't really mean much, except where that size impacts the urinary channel. So if it gets bigger on the outside, that's a problem. But if it gets bigger on the inside to occlude the urinary channel, that's a problem. I like to describe the prostate as an orange. An orange peel, the outer part of the orange, that's where prostate cancer grows. And then the meat of the orange. And men pee through the middle of the meat of that orange like peeing through a donut hole. And if that donut hole gets smaller and smaller because the prostate's getting bigger, that creates some of the urinary problems that they have. There are certain men who are more likely to develop a BPH or benign mm-hmm. prostatic hypertrophy, enlargement of the prostate, than others. Is it Does it run in families? It, there's a, certainly a family uh, risk with it, so it definitely runs in families. Um, there's also a bunch of theories about certain environmental exposures, certain lifestyle things of things that you may eat or ingest or be exposed to in your career. Um, but usually it does run in families, but part of it is men are just living longer. And we may be sicker and dying younger, but we're living longer than we were uh, back when we uh, emerged from the oceans. So based on that, the prostate gets bigger over time, and it certainly does cause problems. The other thing that we're seeing now is prostates are getting bigger because as a first symptom of those urinary symptoms, primary care physicians and men's health providers are providing medications, which is an easy answer to help alleviate those symptoms. That doesn't always shrink the prostate. So the symptoms may be getting better, but the prostate keeps growing bigger and bigger. I want to go back to something you said initially when we got started and that you thought, well, my dad took him longer to go to the bathroom, my grandpa. Are you telling me that men really do have these conversations with the other men in their lives to find out that, oh, it's normal what's happening? Uh, taking longer to go to the bathroom is a normal part of aging. Are, are men, I, that surprised me when you said that. I really thought this would be something that men would be kind of suffering on their own and wouldn't talk to other people about it. Just like most things. We suffer on our own. Any, of the, other to to- the any of the other topics that we <laughs> talk about, that's one of the, the problems for men. Yeah, and I think that they do suffer, but what you got to look at is the bathroom situation for men is totally different. We all have urinals. So when you go to a restaurant or if you go to a sports event or if you go to an airport and you're urinating next to somebody else, you know who takes longer oh. to urinate. And so it it elevates what they're seeing in terms of their life. I find that the most men have this conversation from what I hear is on the golf course. Hmm. It's all about how many times they have to go to the bathroom before the turn. Mr. Golfer. Uh, That's right. And, and, you know, we're not in a stall. We know what the the guy next door is is doing. That makes makes a great point. So then you, you see that it is changing. And then do they come and see you? Or are they just talking amongst each other going, yeah, this sucks to get old? So it's it's actually really interesting. We did a study looking at trends in surgical treatment of BPH. Um, and what we did is we took all the men that had had BPH and we tracked where they are from um, for a specialized procedure we do for BPH. And I thought, well, all these patients that I'm operating on, they uh, there's certain physicians that just keep sending them in over and over. But when we looked at it, it was a viral spread that just made the country just kind of start turning red where they – when we first started doing this procedure back uh, over a decade ago, about 65% of my patients came from Arizona. Now in 2018, 
only about 22% of my patients come from Arizona. The rest come from all over the country and all over the world for this procedure we do for BPH. And my largest referral source is patients sending patients. And that's unique in a disease, right? So usually it's physicians sending patients in, referring them in. But this procedure is a little bit specialized, and it's the patients. And one man may have one surgical treatment. One man may have another surgical treatment, another. And then they're all peeing on the golf course. They're all talking about it, and they're like, I want to pee like he did. I want to be able to write my name in the snow again or the sand, depending on where you're from. If you're playing golf in the snow, you are golfing in the wrong spot. Uh, Minnesota golf. Before we talk about uh, treatment options and, in particular, the one that that you specialize in, I want to ask you about uh, what happens if this goes untreated? Aren't there some potential complications if you don't either get medication or or surgery? Yeah, so... So what's interesting is there are certain complications where we say surgery absolutely isn't necessary, where you can't urinate anymore. Your kidneys can start to fail because they can't get the urine out anymore. You start to get infections. You start to get stones in your bladder from the signs of not being able to get those um, get the urine out. And in the United States, the real death mortality of BPH is pretty much a historical disease because patients seek treatment before they get to that end stage, and it's treated with medication or they're referred on. I also do uh, surgical mission work in Haiti where it's different. The same disease of BPH, men are dying because their prostates get so big and they can't pee. Um, so they get a catheter, but they don't have the resources to get more than one catheter, so they die from infection. Or they can't pee and the kidneys start to fail and they don't have access to dialysis. So in the United States, it's more of a disease of convenience. and um, other more austere parts of the world, it's more of a disease that can be lethal. All right, before we talk about uh, treatment, we, we do need to take a short break, but I want to ask you quickly about diagnosis. Is this a diagnosis that you make by history and rectal exam, or are there other tests that you need? So we do start with history and rectal exam to kind of gauge the symptoms, and we have what we call a severity score, either an AUA symptom score or an international American prostate. Urological Association. Yep, yep. American Urologic Symptom Score or International Prostate Symptom Score where it looks at several domains of how they're urinating, and we can use that to grade kind of where they are in the treatment paradigm. Once we have that, we do other tests, such as a Euroflow, where men pee into a bucket. We see how fast the flow is going. We put an ultrasound on the stomach to see how much they're actually emptying their bladder. Um, we may do something called a cystoscopy, which is putting a teeny tiny telescope through the penis to actually determine the morphology or what that prostate looks like from an anatomic standpoint. Because not all prostates are the same. They come in different shapes, configurations, and certain treatments won't work for certain prostates. Um, and then sometimes we do an ultrasound of the prostate to get an idea of the size. Because certain procedures and technologies are only good for small prostates. Others are better for big prostates. What we've learned is it's not one size fits all. You have to treat the individual and the individual prostate. So all of those things will help you decide on a treatment regimen that's appropriate for the individual. Correct. And I think there are basically two, medication and surgery. So how do you how do you start and how do you decide? So it's all based on the severity of the symptoms for the patient. So if they say, boy, this is really bothering me, or if they say, this isn't that much of an issue, I'm okay, I can live like this, as long as we do an assessment and we make sure they're not doing any damage to either their kidneys their bladder or overall, then we're okay. There are absolute indications for surgery that I alluded to before, is if they can't urinate, if the kidney function starting to be affected, if they're developing bladder stones, or sometimes the prostate gets so big, just like you get varicose veins on your leg, you can run into bleeding situations. And once you start to get bleeding from the prostate to fix that so that you don't have any more bleeding, sometimes we advocate treatment in those situations as well. So a lot of it's based on the symptoms of the patient as well as the medical need for what 
guides our next steps in terms of treatment. Do the medications work pretty well, and do they have side effects? So the medications do work very well. There's a host of different medications, um, and we can get into the classes. They do have side effects from them. Um, the biggest side effect that men complain about from the side of, from the profile of the medications is what's called retrograde ejaculation. So instead of um, during sexual intercourse, instead of the semen coming out of the tip of the penis, it will go backwards in the bladder because the prostate is relaxed. Um, some men do not like that feeling. Um, most women prefer that feeling. Uh, <laughs> So uh, some of the medications as well will have side effects where they get she said, lightheaded. Honey, why don't you get on that medication? <laughs> oh, my well, gosh. I have, I have had wives come in afterwards for their follow-up checkup and say, why didn't we start these medications a long time ago? <laughs> la, 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 la. So these are just real conversations that happen sure. with patients. And um, that's why we do this program. Okay, continue. And then there are newer classes of medications, and some of them work better in combination. The, the th- tricky thing about prostates is, is you don't always just focus on the treatment of the prostate itself and the enlargement, but sometimes that enlargement can cause side effects to the bladder and the way the bladder behaves. So you have to treat maybe the bladder becomes overactive and they've got a lot of urinary frequency where they're going every 10 to 15 minutes or a lot of urinary urgency where they got to go and they got to get there right away or they'll start leaking urine. And so sometimes your medication therapy has to be tailored to treat not just the prostate, but the downstream consequences of what the prostate's done to the bladder. Now, do these medications just help you urinate better, or do they, can they actually shrink the prostate? So one class of medications in particular can help shrink the prostate. Um, that's called Proscar. It's a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. It's the same medication we use to grow hair. Um, and what it does is it prevents the conversion of testosterone to dihydroepitestosterone only in the prostate and at hair follicles. So what that will do is it will shrink the prostate and it will also decrease the PSA. Okay, no, that's, a, that's called Proscar. Proscar or Finistride. Okay, is that the same as Flomax? No, Flomax is an alpha blocker, which basically the prostate has smooth muscle in it, and that Flomax will relax that smooth muscle to open up the channel. You'll see an effect from Flomax within 7 to 14 days, where with the Proscar, you may not see an effect because it works through a hormonal pathway for 4 to 6 weeks, and you may not see the maximum effect for up to 6 months. And does the Proscar cause retrograde ejaculation? All the medications have the ability to cause retrograde ejaculation. Would surgery be a better option? With these side effects of the medication, it seems like maybe. So depending on the prostate and their symptoms and the severity of their symptoms, you may want to consider surgery earlier than the medication treatments, especially if that patient has what's called a median lobe where that prostate grows into the bladder and acts like a flap valve to block the channel. Medications are not very effective in treating that particular situation, in which case surgery is going to be much more efficacious for those patients. What's happening during the surgery? What are you doing? So it depends on what surgery we're talking about, and and that's where BPH gets very confusing because there's a spectrum of treatments, and it goes everywhere from very lowly invasive to maximally invasive and minimally effective to maximally effective. And so we have these minimally invasive surgical therapies, which are office-based therapies, things that you may hear in the common part called Eurolift, which is a device that you implant and opens up the channel. Um, there's something called resume or steam therapy to create scarring within the prostate to open up that channel. Um, if you can think about it, people have done it to the prostate. But the more effective the surgery, the more you of that tissue you remove, 
the longer the results are going to be, the less the retreatment is going to be. What's the surgery that the guys are telling each other, you need to go see my guy and have this done? That's the holup. Okay. Homium laser enucleation of the prostate. And that's what gets us back to that orange model. When you think about the orange and the orange peel, what we're able to do without making any incisions in the body is we go and we peel the meat of the orange away, push it into the bladder so that small channel through the prostate becomes a wide open, almost cavern or cistern. And then we put another instrument in there called a morselator, which morselates all that tissue up and pulls it out. The advantage of that is, one, the tissue we get out, we're able to look at under the microscope to make sure there is no prostatic disease, such as prostate cancer or things like that. Even though a minimal amount of prostate cancer grows in the center part of the prostate while the majority grows in that orange peel, um, but we're able to remove the catheter on the same day or the next day, and they're able to get back to their normal activities in seven to ten days. So men really appreciate any kind of procedure where they can come in, they can leave the same day or the next day, they don't have to make friends with their Foley catheter, and then they can get back to all their normal activities in seven to ten days without worrying about bleeding or things like that. And their and their retreatment rate on that is less than 1%. So it becomes a lifelong solution for them. No more need to take medications. They don't have to spend the money. They don't have to take the time with it, and it's a permanent solution for them. You have to be pretty skilled to do this operation, don't you? I mean, not all urologists do this. It's probably one of the most difficult surgeries in all of urology, uh, just because you have to take a two-dimensional object and translate it into three dimensions. Once you learn how to do it, it's not challenging. But being able to identify the planes and things like that, there's probably about 25 centers in the United States that do it. At Mayo Clinic, probably has the highest expense, uh, experience in the United States We've done about over 2,500 personally just in Arizona. So you have done 25. I've done over 2,500 in Arizona. Are you making 3D models of their particular prostate, or is that going overboard to prepare for each surgery? No. After 2,500, you pretty much, there's not much the prostate can throw at you. Um, so we don't use models. It's all about the identification of the surgical plane. That's where the challenge is. And then it's all about, after that, efficiency. The nice thing about this procedure is the laser is so hemostatic. So even if they're on an anticoagulation like aspirin or something that they need to be on for some other health reason, you're able to take care of that prostate. The other nice thing about the holop is there's no size restriction. You can do small prostates, medium-sized prostates, big prostates. Small prostates are probably the most challenging. I would say those are probably the ones that don't need this procedure. But once they're over a certain size, and most prostates normally are 20 to 40 grams, Prostates, anything greater than 80 grams is considered a large prostate. The average prostate I see in my practice is about 150, and the biggest prostate I've done with the hole-up technique was about 770. That's is about an orange. Uh, it's oh. about a sack of oranges. <laughs> it was it was a big one. Do oh they gosh. do that, this procedure at all three sites, all three Mayo Clinic sites? Uh, yes. So they've got somebody in Jacksonville doing it. Um, they had somebody here in Rochester doing it, but they don't currently uh, right now. I was up here before um, teaching somebody in Rochester to do it, but right now they're looking to fill that position right now. In the past decades, when someone had prostate cancer, Part of the problem would be if we take that prostate out, we can end up doing more damage than if we were to just watch, leave it in and watch full weight. Is that day gone with this new type of surgery? We've got to be careful in what we're talking about because what we've talked about with holop is for benign BPH, not necessarily cancer. The cancer 
surgeries are a little bit different. And the big risk of the cancer surgeries is damaging the nerves that cause erectile function and the sphincter that allows you to be continent or not leak urine. So I would say that we've come a long way in the cancer operation that we're an, we do what's called an anatomic radical prostatectomy. Usually now anymore we do it robotically. I'd say where the next frontier on that is going to be is going to be focal therapy of the prostate. And so if somebody has prostate cancer, instead of treating the whole prostate, we're going to use a myriad of other technologies to our uh, full potential, such as genetic testing. Not all prostate cancers are the same. And even though we know that prostate cancer can happen in multiple parts of the prostate, maybe it's only that one prostate cancer that's the lethal one. So if we treat the lethal one, the other ones we may not have to worry about. The problem with prostate cancer is once somebody hears the diagnosis of cancer, Mm -hmm. they think it needs to be treated. That's not necessarily true, and that's the message that we need to do a better job educating about. Not all all prostate cancer is lethal cancer. Over 50% of 80-year-old men have prostate cancer, but not 50% of 80-year-old men are dying from prostate cancer. It's the lethal ones we need to identify and treat. June is Men's Health Month, and there's a reason to raise awareness of preventable health problems in men and also to make an early diagnosis and get treatment started as early as possible. Women live five years longer, and they go to the doctor much more often than do men. Men, we need to take a lesson from the women of the world. And we've talked about benign prostatic hyperplasia or hypertrophy, enlargement of the prostate. Most men can get by with medication, but there are surgical options available. And it sounds like, would you say the whole procedure is now the gold standard? It is the gold standard. The only thing that keeps it from being the gold standard is not enough people know how to do it. But the outcomes, the patient outcomes, the less risk, the easier recovery, whole it by far, and the literature supported it uh, all the time over any other potential treatment. Our thanks to urologist Dr. Mitchell Humphreys from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Well, it's tick season, as you may know. The first human bite in the U.S. by the Asian longhorn tick has been reported. Dr. Bobby Pritt, a parasitic diseases expert at Mayo Clinic, says it was first discovered in the U.S. on a sheep in 2017. It's now in about 11 states, mostly in the eastern part of the country. So is there cause for concern about the Asian longhorn tick? Dr. Pritt says they do know it has bitten humans in other countries and can transmit some viruses and bacteria that can be serious. The good news is the serious virus associated with it has not been found in the U.S. She says the U.S. Department of Agriculture is doing a lot of work monitoring this tick to contain its spread. She says to avoid any tick bites by wearing a tick repellent when you're going outside, wearing covering clothing, tucking your pants into your socks, and then checking for ticks when you come inside. And in other news, there is a saying that you reap what you sow. And in the case of a vegetable garden, a rich harvest may bring more than dinner. Anya Guy, a Mayo Clinic dietitian, says gardening is good for your body and mind. She says if you have a garden, there's a good chance you'll eat more fruits and veggies because you have them right in your backyard. Gardening also can help reduce stress and anxiety levels and offer light physical activity. 
You're wondering what to grow? Guy says to consider a rainbow variety because different vegetables have a variety of different health benefits unique to each of them. Chili peppers and banana peppers, for example, contain capsaicin, which has been shown to have a number of health benefits. A homegrown tomato is often a gardener's pride. Rich in antioxidants, tomatoes contain potassium, vitamin C, and are a source of fiber. If you don't have the option to garden at home, maybe there are community gardens in your area to consider. By embracing your green thumb, you may be able to unpack your vegetable basket instead of a grocery bag. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. After surviving a heart attack, most people do try to make some lifestyle changes. Healthier diet, more exercise, maybe getting some pounds off. But what about sex? If you've had a heart attack and forgot or were reluctant or hesitant to ask your doctor about intercourse, you're not alone. So we're here to answer that question for you. That's what we do. (laughs) Our guest today is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Francisco Lopez Jimenez. Dr. Lopez Jimenez also serves as an editor for the Mayo Clinic Health Letter. Welcome back to the program. It's nice to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Dr. Lopez Jimenez, so nice to have you back. Uh, I guess if you've had a heart attack and you're leaving the hospital, sexual activity is probably not high on your list of things to talk to your doctor about? That's actually very common. It's a very common concern that patients generally don't talk to the doctors. Most people will think about it uh, in one way or another, but they just don't talk about it. Do they figure that they'll just see how it goes or that maybe they'll talk about it at a follow-up appointment? Have you ever gotten that far into the weeds? Probably some patients just don't see that as a relevant or or important thing at that point in their lives, Uh, but others might feel uh, afraid to talk about this. Maybe uh, they probably don't want to be perceived as uh, focusing the wrong things. Uh, I don't know, but uh, it's actually very common that we, the cardiologists, have to bring it up uh, rather than the patients asking about it. Do you generally make it a point to bring it up? Yes. If the patients don't say anything about it, I, I, I basically ask them, would you like to talk about your sexual life? And, and more often than not, they will say yes, absolutely. So how physically taxing is intercourse? It all depends. And it is different from women and men. And also, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a range. But generally speaking, it will be about going upstairs at a slow pace, uh, a light jogging. How, how many flights? <laughs> Good point. Uh, as, as long as the duration of the activity. So, so, so it's as taxing as walking upstairs? It is similar uh, at a slow pace. Slow pace. Yeah, slow pace, which is about the same as a mile jogging. But so, again, it, it depends, men and women, and, and, and some people might exercise more strenuous activity during, during, during sexual activity. So do you also bring up exercise when you're having these appointments? I mean, if you're going to equate that to walking upstairs or light jogging, I would assume that this falls very easily into something that you bring up with patients. Yes, absolutely. We we talk about exercise and other issues about lifestyle, uh, stress management, uh, taking the medications on time, etc. But uh, So this is generally part of the general recommendations. But we also want to be sure that the patients understand the fact that in most cases, sexual activity is okay after a heart attack 
after taking some specific uh, precautions. And in some cases, it might not be okay. They may have to wait because the condition might be serious enough that they just cannot do that, at least for some time. Specific precautions? Yes. Uh, generally speaking, we, we, we recommend patients to go to cardiac rehabilitation after the heart attack, and that, that applies to everybody. And that's a good way for patients to go back to their normal lives. They get confidence exercising, and they get uh, confidence performing the day-to-day activities. Uh, the second thing is to do an exercise stress test, and we want to be sure that when they exercise, the heart is okay. And, and third, we, we also want to be sure that they, uh, they know that the combination of some medications like nitrates or nitroglycerin don't go very well with some medications used to, to increase the sexual performance in men. So the nitrates, why do people take nitrates? Nitroglycerin. Yeah, that, that's given generally to open up the arteries of the heart, the coronary arteries. Uh, it's also given to treat patients with chest pain after a heart attack. So those medications dilate the arteries, open up the arteries. And, and what happens is that the medications use, uh, like Viagra or medications for uh, sexual performance, they generally have the, a very similar effect. They so also, you shouldn't use the two together? Not at all, because okay. the combination might actually drop the blood pressure a lot. So do you tell patients uh, basically to avoid sex until they have had a, a stress test? Generally speaking, yes, yes. And, uh, and we also uh, give recommendations to avoid uh, stressful situations. Um, you know, it's, it's well known that heart attacks after sex generally occur uh, under very unique circumstances, uh, like uh, extramarital sex or or sex in situations that are unusual. Is uh, that right? Yeah. And, and that's rare, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is uncommon. It, it is actually very rare. But but when that happens, generally. Uh, generally happens under those circumstances that I mentioned. You know, usually with extramarital affairs or in in unusual situations of of thrill and danger. You said uh, that the patient after they've had a heart attack they have to do cardiac rehab, and that you uh, suggest they do not have sex right at the beginning of that cardiac rehab time. How long is the patient usually in a cardiac rehab program? Well, it's usually between a month to three months. It's a, it's a time. Actually, they don't have to wait for the three months to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they are attending rehabilitation, they will be exercising uh, every time they go to rehab. So uh, at any time, if they can prove that they can be on the treadmill uh, performing a physical activity that will be at the same level um, in, in terms of effort, they, they, they will be okay. And what do you tell them about alcohol? Well, to to drink alcohol with moderation, and and particularly to prevent the the dangerous uh, trio. The dangerous trio is taking a Viagra pill, taking a hot tub, and then uh, drinking alcohol, because the three of them will uh, actually cause the same effect as the nitrates. So they may actually have a big drop in the in the blood pressure. But the cardiac rehab is is certainly key, not only in um, improving your physical activity after a heart attack, 
um, but also uh, allowing <clears throat> you to pass the stress test so that you can give them the okay. Absolutely, yes. And also we recommend patients, if they develop erectile dysfunction after the heart attack, it is generally caused by some trauma or some unrealistic uh, fears. So it's something that has to be discussed because uh, many patients uh, develop depression after a heart attack. And part of it is actually the fact that uh, that they uh, really feel that their ability to do normal activities has uh, diminished. And many times it's just a matter of reassuring them that they can actually do it. And and one of those key things is, of course, uh, sexual activity for, for those who are sexually active. All right. Well, if you've had a heart attack and wonder if it's okay to resume sexual activity and you haven't talked to your doctor about it, well, now you know. An interesting Avoid the Dangerous Trio, Viagra, Hot Tub, and Alcohol. Thanks to Dr. Francisco lopez Jimenez. Enjoyed having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, after years of observing that patients' private parts were often left exposed during certain medical and surgical procedures, especially those around the hip and the pelvis, <laughs> Dr. Bruce Levy, an orthopedic surgeon at Mayo Clinic, and his wife, Heather, decided to do something about it. An orthopedic surgeon, no less. Yeah, they're amazing. They're so genius yeah. is what they are. <laughs> Dr. Levy joins us in studio to share the story. Hello, Dr. Levy. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Thank you so much. I feel like I've had this idea. Anybody who's had to wear a cover-up in the hospital has said, can we get a little more, more fabric here? But you actually did something about it. Yeah. Well, the one thing about that, Tracy, is nobody ever steals that stuff. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Maybe they will now. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do a lot of hip arthroscopy. and um, So during, you put the little telescope into the hip and fix and, whatever's wrong. And fix whatever's wrong. Okay. And uh, during that procedure, Tom, patients are fairly exposed. They're um, somewhat spread eagled in the operating room because we put them in a traction setup so that we can get access into the hip joint. And historically, we've covered their private areas with a blue towel. But as we move the patient around during the operation and just to get them prepped and draped, the blue towel often falls on the floor. And then I'm yelling at my team, blue towel, blue towel, blue towel. Like we need to keep the patient's privacy and dignity in hand. And uh, ultimately, the, the blue towel just wasn't adequate. And how would you keep the blue towel in place? <laughs> uh, with difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, believe it or not, there are some places where they staple the blue towel to the skin. Uh, to After keep the it patient is asleep. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and so despite our best efforts in trying to maintain patients' privacy and dignity, there just wasn't a really good way to do it and still give me as the surgeon access to the medical site to do the operation. So it's not like you could just move underwear out of the way. you got to prep and drape the whole field. So uh, we looked online, my wife Heather and I, and we so were So if you have a problem, the first place you go is your spouse, your wife. Yeah. He's a very, <laughs> very <laughs> wise right, man. Right. <laughs> and I, I said, we, we, we have to find a better way. There's got to be something out there that can protect patients' dignity but still give me access to do the operation. And we looked online. We looked at all the different drape and gown companies, and we couldn't find anything. We were just dumbfounded. So I went down to Mayo Medical Ventures, and I asked them to do a patent search and see if there was anything available and there were no patents. So you can imagine how excited Mayo was uh, to, to come up with some of these patents, utility and design. And uh, once again, be the leaders in healthcare, 
providing patients around the world with a higher level of privacy and dignity than, than anywhere else in the, in the planet. So, 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 yeah, yeah. How, how did you develop this? I yeah. mean, I, I read someplace that you and Heather went out and bought a bunch of uh, pairs of underwear and started <laughs> trying that, to develop that, this. That right? is true. We actually uh, went to Target and we bought a ton of different uh, types of briefs, if you would, and we started cutting and um, clipping and it uh, was poking and <laughs> and eventually we came up with a rough design and then we found... Uh, a seamstress in town, and we got some materials together and uh, created our first design. And uh, through the process, I have to say, um, Mayo has just been incredible. Every department we went to, uh, we were met with open arms for this concept, people hugging us and thanking us and saying, how come nobody has thought about this or, or taken it to this point? And so we went through many different trials in various departments at Mayo, uh, and, uh, eventually we came up with the product that is now an FDA regulated class one medical device that meets every standard and criteria for draping gown that you use in the operating room, including allergy. There's no latex. It's even flammability. It meets <laughs> every criteria you can imagine. It was not an easy process uh, to who's, get that through. Whose name is on the patent? Both of yours? So uh, Mayo actually uh, owns uh, many of the patents. Okay. Uh, and uh, any of the patents where I'm the inventor, since Mayo owns my intellectual uh-huh. property, they are the owners of gotcha. the patents. But subsequently, we've developed other other designs uh, that our team has invented. So uh, Cover does have some of those patents. So you've got the first version that was for hip surgery. Yes. What are the other two uh, styles for? So uh, what we found, actually, interestingly, is that everywhere we went, someone said, wow, we could use this for our procedure. And the amount of procedures around the hip and groin and lower extremity is just increasing uh, astronomically because of all the minimally invasive techniques and catheterizations and things. So we have a uh, a half-short garment that, imagine it's just like a half-short, and uh, that's what we use for all the hip and knee replacements and all the hip surgery. Then we have a um, what's called a bilateral cover, which is... Uh, one that imagine a regular underwear that then retracts to the midline to get access to both groins. So that's what's being used in uh, for angiograms and cath labs around the country, vein ablations, things like that where you need access to, to both sides of the groin. Okay. Uh, one of our hip replacement surgeons uses that for bilateral hip replacement surgery. And then we have what's called the unilateral, which gives exposure all the way up the entire flank, even up to the axilla. So that could be used for any kind of biopsies or thoracic or abdominal procedures. So orthopedic surgeons, I mean, they not only are skilled, they have great ideas. So I just shouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> no. Tell us about a little bit about your background. How did you? Why did you decide to become an orthopedic surgeon? Oh, oh, we're getting personal, are we? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, um, as a youngster, uh, and you may not know this, Tom, but uh, I used to race uh, motocross. And uh, I had a full sponsor, and I raced all across Canada and even in the United States. You were an orthopedist dream. Yeah. And uh, 17 orthopedic surgeries later, uh, after many, many spills, last of one got me in the hospital for a little over three months. 
I uh, fractured multiple extremities in my skull and had a pulmonary emboli. And in those days, with all those open fractures, you stayed in the hospital for months and months. And you were probably exposed for a fair number of days. <laughs> I most likely was, yes. And uh, my mom actually was friends with an orthopedic surgeon, and she said, I'm going to call him. His name is Marty Kerner. And he showed up in the emergency room, and there I was with multiple fractures and thinking, you know, this is just awful and obviously very scared. And he came in and he said, I got this. <laughs> and I said, what, you, what do you got? And he goes, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of you. I'll get you all fixed up, and uh, you'll be here for a couple months, but, you know, you're, you'll be able to resume a relatively normal life when I'm done with it. And you were how old then? I was 18 at the and time. And where were you? In Montreal, Canada, oh. yeah. Is that where you grew up? That's where I grew up. And so this guy uh, impressed you, obviously. He impressed me, and I thought to myself, Tom, if one person ever looks at me the way I looked at this this person, my life would be fulfilled. I could not <laughs> believe that somebody could just walk in like, no problem, I got this, I'll take care of you. And so there you have it. That's what uh, that's what drove me uh, to, to go after uh, a medical career and ultimately orthopedic surgery. If you've never experienced that in, with your career as a surgeon, I'm sure you certainly will now with this product that helps people feel a lot more comfortable when they're undergoing surgery. Yeah, it's it's been extremely rewarding. I use it every day on my patients, and uh, there isn't a day that goes by that people don't show their appreciation. It's... Uh, it's been overwhelmingly heart heartwarming. I mean, did you, it's just did you get really, to name them? Are they named Levy Pants or what are they called? No, they're they're just they're covered. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, it's, all it's right. Maintaining <laughs> patients' privacy for various medical procedures, we've now got you covered. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. Bruce Levy, who, along with his wife Heather, has designed garments to keep patients' private parts. Private. Dr. Levy. Twister. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.